Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast sponsored by Australia's Stats Insider. Tennis with an Accent podcast listeners will be used to checking Stats Insider for pre-match predictions, world rankings by surface type, major tournament simulators, and other cool cutting-edge tennis content. But perhaps the coolest tool of them all is the in-play live match probabilities. Using Stats Insider's custom serve-by-serve machine learning predictive algorithms, watch as Stats Insider comes alive with full match stats and dynamic probabilities of your favorite player winning their match as it's being played. Live in-play match statistics and dynamic probabilities now on statsinsider.com.au throughout the Australian Open and for all major ATP and WTA tournaments. Head to www.statsinsider.com.au and click Tennis to access all of Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free. Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. I am Matt Zemek with my co-host Saqib Ali, and it's the midpoint of the Australian Open. And uh, to help us discuss the various components of this tournament, men and women, we have tennis with an accent writer, contributor, analyst, Andrew Burton. So uh, as we welcome Andrew, uh, I, I want to throw it to Saqib to get our uh, session of questions rolling. Saqib. Hey guys, uh, Happy New Year, Andrew. I know we haven't spoken in this forum, and today is the first time we spoke, uh, you know, on the Skype forum as well as we prep for this podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the 2020 edition. Me and Matt has already uh, done a couple of episodes. Like Matt said, it's a midpoint, and let's look back at the tennis that was played uh, in the last week, uh, and let's start with the men's side, Andrew, because uh, you've uh, you have and I, you know, like speaking uh, speaking on Twitter on some of the aspects. Uh, Roger Federer and Nick Kyrgios have won a couple of interesting 10-point deciding tie breaks. So your thoughts on that? That's the first change that comes to mind. And uh, how do you view uh, the context with those two matches, how the player who was trailing ended up winning with very fine margins against Fuchovic and Hachinov, respectively? Yeah, I think Milman uh, in round three. Uh, Federer just played Fuchsovic, uh in the fourth round uh, earlier today, but uh, Federer took on Milman in the third round and in the, uh, in the same round, uh, Khachanov and Kyrgios played each other. Both uh, matches ended in a fifth set tiebreaker, both 10-8. Uh, Kyrgios, who has been, I think, very warmly embraced this year by the Australian crowd for the way that uh, he's taken on the the challenge of responding to the brush fires and and getting a charity response he, he's he's really stood out there uh Kyrgios played a very very disciplined match for the most part against Kachanov there were there was the occasional tussle with the umpire but uh Kyrgios showed a lot of discipline but trailed 8-7 uh with Kachanov two serves uh the rules for the the new 10-point tie break, same as the rules as they've been in the the doubles uh, before, which is you've got to get to 10 points, win by two, instead of seven points, win by two. And I think one of the commentators had pointed out that 
Hutchinoff hadn't dropped two points on his serve, um, you know, almost in the entire match. Uh, that's two successive points on his serve in the entire match. So stepping to the line up a mini break, you could imagine that uh, Hutchinoff was uh, going to win at least one of them. But Hirios uh, got both of the uh, Hutchinoff service points and then won the tie break on a Hutchinoff error to win 10-8. And then Federer uh, had John Millman, who had famously beat him at the US Open in a round of 16 match uh, a year and a half ago when Federer quite rarely for him had been sort of struggling with heat and humidity. Millman, as Federer said, is a Queenslander and just, you know, loves those conditions. Conditions were a lot cooler uh, in Melbourne in the last few days, probably thankfully. And But it still seemed to suit Millman. He went toe-to-toe with Federer, uh, looked the better player most of the match, led 8-4, in the champions or match tie break and you know for all the world looked as if he was going to close it out he'd been very solid he'd uh, you know a lot of the time seemed to almost outplay Federer and then with the match on his racket uh, hit a couple of unforced errors Federer hit a drop shot Millman bunted the ball long and two points later Federer had escaped with a little bit like Houdini, no one could quite work out how he'd done it. He seemed a little bit embarrassed almost when he talked to Jim Courier at the end of the match. And so this is the first time that the 10-point tiebreak has been used at a major. It's been used in singles for the Labour Cup. And I think it's it's really shown itself as a, as a tremendous innovation. So both of those matches were, were standout matches for me, the the Australian so far this year. Matt, you, you, if you want to come in and just weigh in uh, from uh, the tennis writer analyst point of view, how this addition to the sport, are you loving this tiebreak or is it too early to embrace it? Uh, what are your initial thoughts on you know this outcome when matches get close and the scoreline goes till 10 instead of 7? So here's the thing with the 10-point tiebreaker and relative to this Australian Open. Uh, much like the Labor Cup, you know, the first Labor Cup was just this amazing success. You know, the first edition went down to the wire. It was incredibly dramatic and suspenseful. Uh, and, and it really gave the Labor Cup a lot of credibility and buy-in. So what we've had at this Australian Open, these tiebreakers are 10-8. These tiebreakers just, are happen, just happen to be cliffhangers. You know, if these tiebreakers were 10-3, 10-4... We wouldn't have any of the positive opinions on it, you know, from from journalists around the planet. But they happen to be these 10-8 plot twist filled, abrupt swerves, you know, the both the Hatchinoff, Curios and Federer Millman uh, final tiebreakers. You know, they had just these insane late plot twists. And I, there have been other uh, 10-8 super tiebreakers as well. I think the uh, Anderson Avashka in uh, round one. Was, was such a tiebreaker, and I think there have been at least a few others. Also, the fact that so many uh, men's matches have gone to a super tiebreaker uh, you know, through one week. So it's just, this is hitting the jackpot just in terms of circumstance. 
And I think that's blinding us to the reality that, you know, if we get some, if we get a tournament in which the laws of averages are a little more spread out and we get some 10-3, 10-4 tiebreakers, you know, you'll see opinion adjust a little bit. I think it remains that if two people have been going at it for four hours, uh, you know, having a handful of points decide the outcome, it still feels like uh, a premature limitation of the battle. And and this is why I have been on record as saying that 12-12, as Wimbledon does, and, you know, we got to see that last year, that just seems like a fair outcome, that you're basically playing a sixth set of tennis. And if it's still tied, okay, then you put an end to the proceedings. Uh, that, That just seems more reasonable. So, you know, I can't really argue against the drama and the theater of a 10-point tiebreaker and how it allows situations to breathe a little more and it gives the trailing player more of a chance to come back. You know, that there is a difference between 6-2 and 8-4. There's a little more space for the trailing player uh, to come back if he gets off to a bad start. So, I mean, uh, the the 10-point tiebreaker as opposed to a 7-point tiebreaker, I definitely like that. But I do think that the idea that we shouldn't at least allow a fifth set to breathe a little more, uh, I think that's that's what some people are missing. I, you know, we don't want them to play forever, but I think that 12-12 or 9-9 or 10-10 would all be better than doing it at 6-6. Interesting. Go ahead, Andrew. Sorry. Yeah, so one thing that, that I wonder is that I think that the, the 2010s game on both sides of the tour, the ATP and the WTA, is is reasonably similar to the game that was played in the, the 2000s. The, the, the two decades haven't changed as much as, say, the, the 2000s was different to the 1990s and the 1990s was different to the 1980s. But one of the things that, that we have seen is a, a lot more attritional tennis. And the... The Australian Open has, has shifted its surface. It's it's gone to to green set, and there's a sense of the 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 play lasting longer. There's, it's harder to hit through the, the court. Seems to take a little bit less spin, and and I wonder if we've gotten used to this idea of attritional tennis that 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 players are out there on the WTA side playing three set matches on the the ATP side playing five set matches, but you could you could also argue that court speed might be a factor in in speeding up matches and meaning that players weren't even if they were going to extended games in a final set they weren't exhausted by the time that they finished them. I think that's very interesting, Andrew. What you said, I'm sure we both were listening to the same commentary this morning during the Federer Fuchovic match. And Cliff Tristale asked Darren Cahill if he were to change, make some changes to make this sport more appealing. And he said the same thing what he just said. Uh, codes need to be quickened up. Uh, right now it's kind of too slow. And then the conversation moved to Wimbledon. And he said, yeah, Wimbledon, if they can't speed it up, they should make use of lighter balls. So I think that conversation is, does, uh, 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 is happening a lot. So again, bringing a parallel to your thoughts with what Cahill said. You both were also tweeting at the same time about Federer grunting a lot to today's match. So as someone who's followed Roger Federer very closely, uh, does grunting mean is he tired? Does grunting mean he's going for extra effort? How do you uh, process uh, uh, that information when you see Federer grunting in, say, second set? 
Yeah, the, the, the typical time you'll see Federer grunting is on clay, you know, where the rallies typically tend to be, um, you know, more attritional with heavy top spin. And, you know, you'll see Federer grunting as he's putting effort in. Today against Fuksovic, uh, he started off, at least to my eyes, a, a, a bit gingerly as if he, he was still feeling the effects of uh, the Millman match on his sort of flexibility and explosiveness. And by the middle of the, the second set, he was obviously really straining to put a effort in behind his shots. A couple of backhands in the middle of the second set, he, he was grunting as loud as I've, I've heard him do it. As I saw it, just trying to, to put as much as he possibly could on the ball. And the interesting thing to me about the match um, was that I, I also sort of rewatched some of it on the tennis channel with Mark Petchy doing the lead commentary. And I thought Petchy was watching a, a different match to the one that I was watching because it, it seemed to me that more that Fuksovic went away than that Federer took control of the match. By the third set, Federer had sort of really lowered the, the volume and you know, it was more the usual kind of Federer that we'd see on hard courts. But his opponent started off so brightly and then seemed to lose his way early in the second set and, you know, never found, found his way back onto the court. Hmm. So Matt, uh, all the favorites, at least the top three men uh, are there. Novak Djokovic was uh, the big choice for everyone to win this tournament. Now the way the surface is playing and he hasn't really spent too much energy. Uh, uh, does he appear to you a bigger favorite than this thing started a week ago? Because uh, he hasn't put a foot wrong yet. Uh, he is a bigger favorite uh, in many ways. And, and you know, people are going to be listening to this podcast sponsored by Stats Insider. They're going to be listening to it at various points during this week, Sakib. So they might be listening to it after the quarterfinals, right before the semis. Um, you know, assuming that Djokovic is there in the semis, he will have gotten there without having to play Stefano Tsitsipas. You know, so as we record this podcast, we're between the uh, fourth round and the quarters. Assuming Djokovic wins the quarters, doing it against uh, Raonic as opposed to Tsitsipas, um, you know, that, that would be a much less physical match. And after the ATP Cup, there, you know, it was, it was legitimate to wonder if Djokovic would have a very physical tournament. And, you know, through four rounds, it hasn't been that way. Uh, so definitely the odds are, are in his favor there. And also the fact that Djokovic is clearly playing at a higher level than Federer is. You know, if they meet in in a semifinal, uh, and I think in general, Sakib, it's it's all pointing to a Djokovic Nadal final. And this is not to discount Daniil Medvedev's chances, but um, and, and we're recording this before the Nadal Kyrgios fourth round match. The fact that Kyrgios played a four and a half hour uh, marathon against Hatchinov, and he did seem to be a little bit gimpy at the very end when it was all over. Uh, you know, that plays into Nadal. And then you have the fact that Tomas Muster uh, had a very short-lived uh, coaching association with Dominic Team That blew up. It abruptly ended. So Team's probably not in the best position to trouble Nadal in the quarters. So, I mean, assuming that Nadal's body holds up. And, of course, his fans are going to be mindful of the Australian Open curse. How in the Australian Open quarterfinals in particular – you know, something happens to go wrong almost every year when he has a shot at this thing. 
but assuming there's no injury, uh, just the, the little, the circumstances of Nadal's path through the draw in this second week, a draw that looked very tough on paper, he's, he, there are a few situations that have a good chance of benefiting him. Now, again, if you're listening to this podcast on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, we'll already know what happened with Rafa in the fourth round in the quarters. So, you know, I, these results, or I mean, these insights could already have been turned on their head. But as we record this podcast right now, there are certain details that are pointing in Nadal's favor to get to the final. But Joe, and of course, if Djokovic and Nadal do meet in the final, we know what the deal is between these two guys on hard courts. It's been an all Djokovic rivalry for some time on this surface. Now, Matt, I kind of uh, disagree here, uh, and I'll probably get Andrew's viewpoint. Not that you know the case you built. Uh, doesn't you know have merit, but I still think uh, Dominic team and Thomas Muster splitting here. Uh, if the two Nadal and team get that far, uh, I think would be a factor. Uh, Nadal probably will be a favorite uh, to win that match, but I, I think t- team is not going to be mentally disturbed with the the partnership. You know that just went public with Muster that things weren't working out. So Andrew, you want to weigh on Nadal's path to the final? I think it's honestly in the second week he's has the toughest path with Kyrgios. Team slash Monfils and then uh, Daniel Medvedev and even maybe, uh, yeah, I think Daniel Medvedev is a favorite to get there. So your thoughts on Nadal's half compared to what Federer and Djokovic uh, face for the remainder of the tournament? Till they get each other, of course. Yeah, I, I spent a little bit of time looking at the, the paths to the uh, fourth round and quarterfinal and then the paths to the, the final because there was a, a lot of commentary on tennis Twitter about a tweet that uh, Christopher Clary of the New York Times posted about Federer's path to the semis, which uh, takes him through no player ranked in the the top thir- in the top forty in the world. Uh, the highest ranked player he'll have played is Krajanovic, who he played in the second round, and he faces Tennis Sandgren, um, who you know, is a little bit of banter between. John McEnroe and Roger Federer after Federer's match today that he was playing a fellow called Tennis, a little bit like playing a slugger called Baseball McGee or something like that. But Federer's path has been, it's not a murderer's row, you can only play the guy in front of you. But then if you look at Nadal's path, it went through Delian, Delbonis, both of them ranked in the, the 70s. Then Carreño Busta, is seeded at 27, Kyrgios is 23. So, you know, a couple of seeds. Djokovic, I thought, had uh, the toughest first round match against Struff. Uh, that looked to me like potentially a tough one. And uh, he Struff did take a set, I think 6-1, and then Djokovic turned on the afterburners in the fourth set to get through. Djokovic's path uh, has taken him through a couple of seeds, Schwartzman, and then uh, Raonic to come. And I think Raonic is, is playing uh, pretty well this tournament. I mean, he's, he, you know, if he's fit and he's serving well, he's a force. And then Medvedev uh, has had fairly straightforward matches. He's got Stan tonight. And then the, if, he, if he makes it past Stan, the, the winner of Rublev and Zverev, so, on paper, you'd give Federer the easiest path to the semis. Um, 
I don't know if Raonic is going to be an easy out. Uh, I could see that one being complicated, but Novak often makes it look less complicated. Um, I would I would pick Nadal to make it uh, through into the quarters, but then I think team has the ability to trouble him. And then you could see Medvedev and possibly Rublev as, as the quarter on the other side. So I don't know if anyone's got a straightforward path through. And uh, if you do get a Federer-Djokovic semifinal, um, I think the three of us would, would agree that on recent records, uh, Djokovic would go in as uh, you know, a 75%, 80% favorite. But that's why you lace up the tennis sneakers. Yeah, absolutely. Even me and uh, Mert had this conversation and we both believe Djokovic uh, is the man to beat in that match and the tournament. Federer, of course, can have his way, but it would be an upset if Federer were to come out of that match. Uh, so, Matt, let me ask you about something. I'm sure you, you're seeing all these Twitter stats of not playing a seed. Is that something you plan to write about? Or And secondly, if you don't, what is a good draw or a bad draw for you? Because I know you have... Uh, made strong cases in the past, and uh, Federer not playing a seed looks like a, a good draw, but then he can play a man like Milman, who has proven to be not a nemesis, but a tough out for him. Their games match up really well for the Aussie. So elaborate on that. What is a good draw for you, and what is a bad draw in this kind of situation? Well, that that last part of the question is is, is precisely the point, Sakib. It, it, they're all situationally relative um you know because Federer didn't play atp cup so he came into this event cold so you know there wasn't the same need for federer uh to have a you know an absolutely clean and easy first week you know nadal really needed to win all nine sets you know he needed to win his first three matches in straight sets to prepare for the potential Kyrgios team medvedev djokovic gauntlet in week two, Federer didn't have that same need. But uh, the comment I'd like to make about the Milman match is that you know Federer cruised through his first two matches. First two matches went very quickly, and then he goes to the other extreme with a match of over four hours against Milman. So I think that with his lack of match play heading into the Australian Open, having a couple easy peasy first and second rounders, and then having going right to a marathon, I think that progression is part of why he started slowly against Buksovics uh, and why he felt that ma- the Millman match physically uh, in, in the fourth round. So I think that you know, it would have been better for Federer to have like a, you know, like a two-hour, 45-minute four-setter against Millman uh, to kind of ramp up gently, but he went from one extreme, you know, no competition, no no battle, to the other extreme, you know, almost losing after four hours. So, you know, what a good draw means, it it it, it really is relative to each situation, uh, you know, in terms of how much your body is ready, how much of a test you need. Um, I, you know, I think that the Milman match, assuming Federer does play Djokovic in the semis, the moment match will be a good thing because Federer will have tasted his own blood. He needs that. He needs. He needed to have been punched in the mouth uh, before playing Djokovic. If, if Federer had cruised past Milman uh, and had really had no 
adversity whatsoever <clears throat> heading into a possible semi. And of course, you know, as we record, he hasn't even played his quarter. Assuming he beats Tennis Sandgren, uh, you know, he, Federer will have needed to have had some adversity. So a good draw, uh, you know, it provides relief in certain spots in the, in specific times that you need it. Uh, but it's not something that's uniformly true where, you know, every match needs to be a favorable matchup. There, there, there's a, there's a balance to be found. Uh, those, what you need in a specific tournament, uh, needs to be calibrated, uh, at various times. Let me, let me, uh, add a little bit on this because I mean, one of the things that we know about the big three is they know how to win Grand Slam tournaments. And I think that, that their consistency and longevity has typically been built around being able to conserve physical and mental energy through the first week and then have depths of reserves in the second week for the, you know, the, the, the tougher matches to come. Not always the case, but that to me is, is, is the fundamental recipe. So when you see a player, and this is something that the younger players don't really seem to have, have learned how to do yet, the, the knock against Alexander Zverev for a long time was that he would play four or five set matches in the round of 64, round of 32, round of 16, and then he, he, he'd either be out or he'd be cooked by the time that the, the later stages came along. Now, you know, we can all speak of times where a player has gotten through to the final and won it, having played longer matches, famously Federer at Roland Garros in 2009. But to me, a really good draw is one that gives you the opportunity to get to the, the business end of the tournament with enough reserves to, to really turn it on when you need it. And so for that reason... Um, Federer's draw so far has been a tougher draw. Mm. So, Andrew, again, just to add to what Matt said, and Matt could have said himself, so you think uh, coming under little undercooked would be the ideal recipe going for Djokovic? Again, we are jumping ahead if they both were to win their quarterfinals. Uh, uh, with, with the lack of tennis, you think that's a good substitute? Uh, just peek at the match itself. And, of course, you, don't well, pl you plan to go five sets by choice, but uh, it should help in the long run, or no? Yeah, so, again, both Federer and Djokovic, I mean, they've played each other something like 52 or 53 times now. There aren't any secrets about what it takes to, to play hard against each other. They both know how to beat each other. I mean, I thought when I saw Federer coming into the tournament that he looked more flexible and pretty explosive in the first couple of rounds. So it seemed like, um, you know, he was in a good place physically. Then two rounds uh, later, he's played a total of nine sets over two matches in slow conditions and, and has been, you know, scratching and grinding and clawing his way through them, uh, winning ugly, if uh, someone wanted to coin that phrase. But again, you know, if he makes it through to the semis, 
Um, I would have Djokovic as a strong favourite to win, but I had Djokovic as a strong favourite to beat him in London at the World Tour Finals, and that wasn't what turned out there. So uh, both of those men know how to to play each other. Both of them have won semi-finals and finals, so we'll we'll see if we get there. Sure. Uh, so let's conclude the ATP conversation with one last question uh, to both of you, Matt. You can go first. I know, Matt, you made a case because of the unusual circumstances preceding the tournament. Uh, we won't dwell too much on losses, but are there anyone beyond the big three that has impressed you or exceeded expectations in the men's draw? Well, you know, given that we're saying this before the fourth round uh, has fully ended, um, I think, you know, some of these statements might be incomplete. Like, you know, how would we grade Kyrgios against Nadal? So that we, you know, we can't give a grade to Kyrgios uh, before seeing that match. So right now it would have to be Milos Raonic. Uh, you know, he was definitely off the radar before the tournament and to sweep through Sitsipas and then handle an informed Chilich. You know, Chilich looked great against Bautista Agu in the third round. You know, he looked a lot more like the Marin Chilich we saw in 2017 and 2018. Um, so for Raonic to get back into the Australian Open quarters, which he did last year, and you know last year he beat Zverev en route to the to the quarters, and this year he beat Tsitsipas. So you know Milos Raonic, um, he, he definitely showed a measure of staying power on the ATP tour. So he'd be my choice. Andrew, you can go ahead, please. Um, it'll be interesting to see who gets through Rublev against Zverev. I think he. Either of those players, unless it's a it's a five hour slugfest that finishes thirty to twenty eight in the uh, the match tiebreak in the fifth set, either of those players would take a lot of confidence into into the quarterfinals. I think Zverev looked uh, a bit all at sea in twenty nineteen, and towards the end of the year came back a bit stronger and. Uh, seems to have put some of the personal issues behind him, seems to have a fair amount of confidence and has been winning much more straightforwardly. Uh, Rublev is a player who has been coming for some time and this could be his coming out party. So those are, those are the two pre-tournament dark horses I'm keeping an eye on on the ATP side. Uh, fair enough. So let's switch uh, gears to the women's side of the draw. Uh, and uh, let's start with the career that just ended, uh, Caroline Wozniacki. So, Matt, I know this is not a time to, uh, it's middle of the tournament, uh, to write a tribute or even discuss a career at length. So, given the recent form, uh, was this a, a bad loss? I mean, the way it ended, uh, I know you followed and uh, written about her closely. How do you summarize uh, this last Australian Open of hers? Uh, you know, I, I think the, the theme of this last tournament for her, this last major for her, is that she gave us one more great memory with the uh, win against Yastremska. And and while her, you know, she came from back from a 5-1 first set deficit to win that set 7-5. So it was the first set, not the third set. But people will remember, and they should, that when she won her one major title at the 2018 Australian Open, she was down 5-1 in the third set to Yana Fett, 
uh, had two match points against her, and she managed to dig out of that and win six straight games to take that match. So the win over Yastremska was it offered a callback to her escape against Yana Fett two years ago, the gateway to her her major championship. And you know the fact that Wozniacki will never be remembered as a majorless former world number one. The fact that she rose to number one and eventually hunted down that major title, it gives a definite completeness to her career. And when we look at the Elena Dementievas and uh, the other many great women's tennis players through the years who, you know, for some reason weren't able to win a major title, the fact that Wozniacki, you know, didn't win a bunch, but she did win one, you know, that, that distinction does put her into a much higher category of achievement. Um, you know, we're, we've learned a lot guys in the past year about, you know, a handful of points radically altering uh, the shape of tennis history and no better example than the Djokovic Federer Wimbledon final, you know, uh, just a couple points made the difference between Federer having a 21, 15 lead and, and, and Federer leading Djokovic in all time majors, 20 to 16. So that was a two major swing resting on a very, very small number of points. And then we've seen these match tiebreakers in Australia, uh, where a handful of points, again, is reshaping destinies for, for various players. And so the reminder is that, you know, a handful of points in any tennis match, it's a crapshoot, it's a coin flip, there's nothing guaranteed. Like, there's no law that says, you know, when you're serving at 40-15, double championship point, you have to win that championship. No, we, we you know, <laughs> two, it's two tennis points. Two tennis points can be won by the returner, just as much as the receiver, and it's not really a condemnation or a negative verdict on the server that he doesn't hit two serves on two specific points out of you know over 400 points played in a match. That that's just randomness. So the measure of a of a tennis player is not what happens in that one moment in that one match on that one day. It's what happens over the course of your your career. So it doesn't matter so much that you didn't win the 2018 Australian Open final. Uh, it, what matters is that over the course of your career, you eventually did find a way somehow to win a major championship. And, this, and the, so the fact that Wozniacki got there uh, speaks volumes about her persistence. I know plenty of people in the, in the tennis industry thought that you know, in t after she made the 2014 U.S. Open final and, and got blitzed by an informed Serena. And, you know, and then in 2015, she wasn't as good as she was in 2014. Plenty of people in that 2015, 2016 period of time thought, it's done. It's over. She's never going to get there. And so the fact that she did get there, it, we need to appreciate that for the amazing achievement it is. And whether we like it or not, it does significantly alter the way we remember tennis players. Very well said and quite a comprehensive answer. So, Andrew, again, uh, just to stick on Wozniacki, what's your view, uh, again, uh, kind of contradicting myself, what's the view on this topic with match elaborated? I mean, uh, do you view players who don't win a major and end up number one? There's, there's an asterisk uh, to that. Uh, happened quite often, I think, on the women's tour. I don't think it happened as often on the men's tour. A player's rank number one because, you know, you have to win majors. Uh, because it's at least in the big three era. So your view on Wozniacki's career, uh, 
with this week, you know, it concluded in Australia. Just uh, uh, is it, or is there a lasting memory you want to talk about? I think that the the memory that I have of of Wozniacki was that yeah, obviously she was very highly respected and liked by other players. A lot of tributes to her as she was um, you know getting ready to leave the game that were prepared to be showed after she did lose her final match. And it, it, it's, it's kind of hard to remember. One of the things that you always find is that people focus a lot on, on the last couple of years rather than the, the sweep of a, a player's career. But, but Wozniacki's early career took off like a rocket. I mean, she, she was you know, the, the coming player uh, by 2010, 2011, winning a lot of tournaments, but not yet winning uh, a Grand Slam, making it to number one. And then almost as rapidly as she rose, she, she sort of dropped back down again. A little bit like uh, Victoria Azarenka. I'm looking at Azarenka's career and comparing it to Wozniacki's. And, and there's a fair amount of similarities between them, although Azarenka obviously had won Grand Slams before Wozniacki did. Um, Wozniacki's... Um, style as a player was really to, to hang in there, to keep on, you know, never give up on points, never give up on matches. And the, the lesson that you always want young players to learn is keep going, keep going, keep going. Good things can happen. And so getting back to winning her, her one title at a Grand Slam in 2018 I mean, she had to beat a very, very good Simona Halep in the final to do that. And I, I, I think that one of the stories about the 2000s and the 2010s is that we, we do focus much more on majors now than I think that we did watching tennis in the 1980s and the, the 1990s. Possibly, you know, folks like Pete Sampras and Federer and on the women's side, Serena Williams have something to do with that. But the whole of her career can't be summed up in, in one or two matches, as Matt says, or one or two titles. Um, and you know, Wozniacki is going to be one of the people that you remember through the 2010s as defining the year on the women's side. Yeah, very well said. Uh, I think uh, I agree with the uh, with the notion uh, of you know how her memory is going to be, uh, her legacy is going to be recognized. So Matt, uh, again, uh, not uh, just keeping informed with what your initial response was, how to talk about this tournament. So let's talk about some of the good uh, results for the first week. Muguruza is one story you've written ample about her. So how surprised are you with this streak? that we've seen in, in week one. Did it come from nowhere or, you know, she has a peaks and valleys record, so was this expected in some way? Well, the, 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 there's really two answers to this socket. One is that, you know, she was being given medical attention uh, late in the first set against Shelby Rogers in the first round, and she got bageled in that first set. So I thought that, you know, something had to have been physically wrong with her. Obviously, she wasn't feeling 100%. But then after that medical visit, maybe you know, took a pill or, or something, uh, you know, hi hydrated, whatever she needed to do. She just snapped into focus and blitzed Rogers and she hasn't looked back since then. So, again, we're 
we're recording this podcast before her um, fourth round match against Kiki Bertens. Um, so, you know, you might be listening to this podcast after the result of that match, but, you know, going into that match against Bertens, I mean, this is the Muguruza, you know, who can dominate women's tennis. And I think it's very clear to see, uh, even if she loses to Bertens or doesn't win this tournament, I think that her career has been put back on track by Conchita Martinez. Uh, and I think it, it's been widely viewed and felt in the tennis industry that Conchita Martinez was always the right coach for Garbina Mukuruza. So, you know, assuming that that partnership sticks, uh, you know, I would say that Muguruza now becomes, because of this awakening, she becomes a leading contender at Roland Garros and Wimbledon. Uh, the, the idea that she can uh, once again become uh, a major champion this year uh, I mean, it has great resonance and, and I've always made the comparison since these, since her career developed, she's, she really is the WTA Stan Wawrinka. I was going to ask you get... exactly that, Matt, that was, you know, yeah. as, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, so who, who's got the ability to win majors and then go out in, in the early rounds and you never, you never know which one you'd get. And I was thinking of Stan, so I'm really glad that you brought that up. Yeah, I mean the the comparison fits pretty perfectly. I don't think we have to explain it all that much. She'll she'll emerge in a burst of of brilliance, and she'll easily be the most authoritative, weighty, imposing hitter in in a major tournament over two weeks, and then she'll go away. Um, but but the idea that she can resurface at a moment's notice, it's always there. You know, the the, the, the talent is not in question. The ball striking ability, the court coverage, they're not in question. It's just a matter of can she unlock those things? And with Conchita's help, you know, it certainly seems as though if she hasn't regained everything, she's certainly begun, she has begun to regain that sense of what she can do on the court. Okay, so Andrew, I'll put you on the spot here. I know Matt uh, uh, has gone on record. Uh, he views this tournament with. Uh, you know, with the bizarre conditions uh, that preceded it. So, are there any losses in week one, Andrew? You want to talk about in the women's tour uh, that are worth, uh, you know, in, the, in this podcast? And you followed the result. Were you surprised? We can talk about uh, uh, your choice of player here. Yeah. So, in, in in terms of players going out, one of the things that you know I raised my eyebrows at was Belinda Bencic getting blasted by. Um, Annette Contevite, uh, you know, that seemed, you know, just uh, a complete uh, beat down. Uh, hadn't expected that to happen. And then Naomi Osaka um, fell to uh, Coco Goff, who is, um, you know, the not yet the next big thing, um, partly because she was taken out. Uh, in the next round by Sophia Kennan. But the manner that Osaka went out to to Goff was a bit surprising to me. That it, it seemed as, in, as if coming into the tournament, Osaka was sort of bearing a burden of being the defending champion. And al although Osaka is 22 and said in the press conference afterwards that she didn't like losing to a 15-year-old, you know, she's a two-time major champion, and you, you you really expect that by 22, a, a 
player who's been ranked number one in the world and came in as the number three seed is going to know how to, um, you know, get out of the way of their own head. But it, it seemed like Osaka at the end of the first set and the end of the second set sort of meekly self-destructed. So I was, I was very surprised to see, to see that result. Hmm. All right, Matt. So this is a question for you. Uh, uh, you always take the difficult ones with ease. So, and Andrew, you can chip in too. We, we talk about fandoms and we all live on Twitter. We see the discussions unfold and surface speeds draw. There's more scrutiny as far as I'm concerned, especially thanks to the big three and the huge fan following each man has. Uh, do you guys feel that uh, the surface talk or the discrepancy or if the code is gritty, if the ball is heavy, is less on the WTA side? It's a generic comparison, but what are your thoughts on how the tours are viewed when we're discussing majors and you know the favorites and the contenders? Matt, you can go first. Well, because, you know, because in modern women's tennis, you know, the past few years since Serena became a mom and had to go off the grid for a little bit, you know, in these past few years since that kind of dividing point, that, that marker in time, uh, we haven't seen any women's tennis player be extremely consistent at the biggest tournaments. Um, you know, and this is a conversation Andrew and, and I have, have had before on this podcast. You know about the WTA's lack of of stability. You know, so the WTA is still in that p- place where it's waiting for a rivalry or a cluster of rivalries to really catch on, gain traction, and stick in the public imagination. So in in that vacuum, that that absence of uh, a lack of a signature WTA rivalry, you're not going to get the various fan bases having a war over the court speed, the conditions, day-night session, and all the things that go into the big three fan wars that we all see on our tennis Twitter timelines. So that's really the dynamic separating uh, the women from the men. It doesn't mean that that court speed isn't germane or important to the women. And in fact, let's, let's remind ourselves that Bianca Andrescu is not at this tournament. And the court for the WTA finals in Shenzhen was an extremely sticky, gritty, slow court. It, it, it created conditions conducive to players having to strain a lot more for shots. You know, the, uh, the WTA season-ending championship decades ago used to be in Madison Square Garden, I believe on carpet in the early 1980s. So imagine if the Shenzhen WTA finals have been played on carpet. I'm not saying that was ever likely, but just let's imagine a world in which that had been the case. If the WTA finals in Shenzhen this past uh, October were played on carpet, I'd say Bianca Andreescu is probably playing the Australian Open. I mean, no guarantees, of course, but I'd say it would be a, a lot more likely. So the court speed, the conditions, the surfaces, these are, these are very important issues for women's tennis just as much as the men. We should be discussing it in a WTA context just as much as the ATP. We're not, though, because the men have the rivalries and the women don't. Yeah, I think I, I, I think that's absolutely right, Matt. I mean, I defer to other tennis with an accent contributors like Susie Reed, who who knows an awful lot more than than I do about um, the 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 finer details on on the women's game. But I took a look at at last year's. Uh, semi-finalists who are still alive in the 
tournament on the ATP side and the WTA side. And and for the 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 women's tournament, there are three players left in the tournament who, who reached a semifinal last year, or or put another way, um, one player who got to a Wimbledon semifinal, a player who got to Roland Garros, a player who got to the Australian Open, just three out of 12 in, the, in on the, the men's side, uh, two of the semifinalists at the US Open, three of the semifinalists at Wimbledon, four of the semifinalists at Roland Garros, and two of the semifinalists in the Australian Open uh, are in place. Now, some of those are the men's big three. On the women's side, it's really been the super one, which has been Serena Williams. And and there are hints at emerging rivalries, um, but we, we're, we're still waiting for them to to go into double figures and, and, and then into the 20s in terms of the number of times they play. Um, I, I think that if the conditions are slower this year, then possibly Halip, uh, who is someone who does very well on clay, will, will stand out. I think Barty's game is very adaptable uh, to slower courts. And, and I thought Barty had a, a very good win against Alison Risk, who uh, you know, pushed her very hard in the third set, and Barty had to, to dig deep to win that one. But the, the, the more you see players playing against each other on hard, on grass, on clay, you know, different court speeds on hard, indoor, outdoor, etc., the more the, the, these rivalries take shape, the more that you get a, a sense, unless a player is, um, you know, a particular surface specialist, which we went away from in the 2000s, and now players tend to be more adaptable across surfaces. Uh, I think, as, as Matt said, it's the rivalries that, that drive our sense of what players are going to be capable of doing. And we're not really seeing as much of that on, on the women's side at the moment. Okay, so uh, what else, Matt, happened in the WTA that you would want this platform and you know use it as a talking point? There's a player from the Arab world who's made a quarterfinals or lost 16. There's uh, Petra Kvitova, last year's finalist, still in the tournament. Are there what what else excites you, the writer, when you see these names, uh, you know, uh, compete for the first major of the decade? Uh, of course, we'll also talk about Serena Williams as we conclude this show, but. Uh, what are the other stories besides the Muguruza and uh, uh, some of the big names that we already talked about? Yeah, so you have to talk about Ons Jabir, um, you know, representing Tunisia and and the and the Arab world, and you know, just opening up the sport of tennis. You know, it it is always exciting, much as Li Na, you know, roughly a decade ago, did for China and uh, and Asian tennis. Uh, you know, to op- open up the world, a new part of the world, to tennis success and, and, and the, the uh, effect that can have in terms of inspiring young women in another corner of the planet, which hasn't had a rich, continuous history or legacy in tennis, you know, to make that a new possibility. I mean, that is just a very exciting thing. So, so that much has to be said. Uh, Jabir also has been 
has dealt with injuries. I mean, you know, when I watched her play for much of 2019, she seemed to almost always have something taped up. Uh, and, uh, you know, so fitness was, was a, a concern for her. So now that we're seeing her in full flight, you know, we're getting to other people are getting to see what many in the tennis world have already known that she has game, that, that she has an authoritative style of play, which can put opponents on the back foot. Um, that, that has fully emerged uh, at this tournament. And then the person that she beat in the fourth round, Wang Kang, managing to defeat Serena Williams in a brilliant match. And, you know, Wang served for the match, got broken, and she got broken not because she choked. She didn't. Serena played a great return game with her back to the wall, as she has been known to do, uh, you know, several hundred times over the course of her career. And, you know, but then in the tie break, second set tie break, uh, Wang then faltered legitimately. You know, it was really, it was arguably her worst period of the match. And for her to just turn the page, go into the third set and reassert herself with brilliant, low mistake, forceful tennis against Serena, that, that's just a magnificent achievement. And it, and it uh, gives her a sense of, of what she can achieve in 2020 and beyond. So Jabur and Wang definitely have to be uh, stories at the top of the list when we talk about the first week of the Australian Open. Uh, Andrew, over to you if you want to add... Uh another name to the conversation or another player whose stat was uh, worth mentioning or whose run is worth mentioning? Um, I'm not sure if I'd single out a, a, you know, a single uh, player. Uh, I think, uh, and I'm probably going to mangle the pronunciation here, so apologies, Sriatek uh, from Poland is, is a coming player and it'll be interesting to see her fourth round match against uh, Annette Contevate. The, the thing that, that continues to stand out for me on the, the women's side, so we, we discussed a little bit the rivalries question, but if you compare the, the WTA side to the ATP side, the, the, the coming wave of good young players, I think that the WTA... Um, you know, takes takes that in straight sets over the ATP, and I definitely see two or three years from now the WTA having the stability, having the rivalries, having um, you know matches deep in the tournament between the top seeds that the ATP enjoys now. Now I've kind of been saying that for a few years now and it, it hasn't come around yet but the 2020s if 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 you know I was investing in stock I I'd be I'd be buying WTA stock ahead of ATP stock because you you know you buy for future growth rather than what it's delivered in the last decade or so as people who bought General Electric know. Uh, very well said so on that note uh, uh, I just also like to with a heavy heart to all the Tennis with an Accent listeners who are also basketball or Kobe Bryant fans, just want to offer condolences from our crew. And personally, myself, I was a huge Kobe Bryant fan when I moved to the U.S. I was following a lot of NBA, and I was just telling Andrew as we prep for the show. Uh, it's a very, very tragic moment. Uh, his 13-year-old daughter was also there, as we all know, and three other folks who were part of this tragic uh, chopper crash. 
Matt, do you want to add anything before we wrap the episode? I would just like to say, as, as uh, I personally extend my condolences to all the people who are shaken and who are sad uh, by the by the death of Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, a, a, a really wrenching, uh, stunning loss for for any of us who grew up with the NBA, grew up with sports, and or and, and you know, who, we 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 are we are all people who comment on sports. So sports have touched our lives, not just tennis. So obviously, this is a personal, meaningful loss for so many people. I just want to say that. Um, you know, Kobe lived a, a complicated life, and I'm not going to discuss his legacy. I would just say that there is a time to discuss the complicated aspects of a person's life. But first and above everything else, there's a, there's a husband and a father and a human being who died. And we need to give space and time to that process of grieving and mourning. We don't need to litigate things about a complicated human being's life right away. When he or she dies, we can grieve and mourn. And then those other a- aspects of a person's complicated life, they'll be there later. You know, we don't have to do everything at once, everything in its place, in its time, in its season. So, you know, if, if, if people have, you know, various views of, or opinions on who Kobe was as a player or as a public figure, to, to focus on the grieving process, the mourning process, does not eliminate uh, larger discussions of who he was. It just means that we're setting something aside for now and we're taking the appropriate time to lament this very sad uh, and, and tragic moment. So I would just leave that for our listeners in case um, they, they have different impressions about who Kobe was. Okay, so this is Sakim signing with uh, Andrew and Matt. We'll be back with another episode in a week's time. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. This is the Tennis with an Accent podcast sponsored by Stats Insider. Follow your favorite player's likelihood of winning their next match all the way through from pre-match to the last point with live in-play match probabilities for every ATP, WTA, and Grand Slam tournament on statsinsider.com.au. Head to www.statsinsider.com.au and click Tennis to access all of Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free.